what is going on guys and welcome back to another episode of the physique archive i am incredibly excited to talk to our guest today he is super knowledgeable and of course likes to go online and ruffle some feathers but always with good intention calling out the bullshit and educating people to what really fucking matters so if you guys like this episode please go ahead leave a review and show some love tag us uh, let us know you listened and i hope that this is super insightful but i want to go ahead and dive right into this so please welcome lane norton you are literally the number one requested guest to come onto my podcast so uh, <laughs> i'm really excited to just dive into your knowledge i know that you're incredibly educated with what you do um, and first what i'd like you to do is just kind of talk about yourself and what got you into this industry and you're so passionate about it i can see it from your content you kind of call out the bullshit, uh, which a lot of people don't do or they're afraid to do um, but you also have the education in the background to back it up so i just want you to kind of open open the floor to you and to what got you here and, and why you're so passionate about it in the first place yeah that's a good question i mean um i'll try to keep it as brief as possible even though I love talking about myself, you know, uh, but um, really what got me in the industry was I was, you know, I was just into lifting um, as, a, as a kid. I was bullied a lot. Didn't get a lot of attention from girls, you know, nerdy kid in high school, that sort of thing. So I started lifting weights as a way to, you know, try to stop getting bullied so much and maybe get some attention from girls. It didn't do either of those things, uh, but I developed a passion for, for lifting weights and, um, one of the things that became apparent pretty early was everybody had an opinion about what you should do. And um, the opinions, you know, in terms of like back when I started, I mean, this would have been the late nineties, um, you know, date myself, you know, it was just, it was flex magazine and muscle and fitness and muscular development. And, you know, those, those were where you got your information. There was no real internet information out there because the internet was, you know, five years old. And so, um, you know, reading the magazines, it was kind of like, well, one magazine would say one thing and then another one would say another thing. And then sometimes the same magazine and the same issue would say two different things. And it was like, you know, so confusing. You just felt like you were going around in circles, spinning your wheels. And so about this time I was getting into competing. Uh, I, I got very fortunate that I had a, a good uh, first coach and mentor in Dr. Joe Kunzetsky, who kind of set me down the right path of questioning bodybuilding and fitness dogma. And um, that kind of increased my thirst for knowledge. And at the same time, I, originally I wanted to do a degree in marine science and I was already kind of wavering on that as I got into college. And then my general chemistry professor told me, Lane, you really should do biochemistry. You know, um, you, if you want to do marine science in grad school, then you can still do that. But, you know, there's so many people who decide that they don't want to do marine science and now they've got a marine science degree and can't get a job. He's like, get a biochemistry degree. You can get a job or you can go to grad school or, you know, the world is your oyster basically kind of talk. So I switched to biochemistry and loved biochemistry, loved every aspect of it. And, you know, as I got, you know, the, the early classes like cell biology and, organic chemistry and whatnot, it's, it's still kind of abstract in terms of how does this apply to what I want to do. But then as I got to the higher level classes like biochemistry, I started realizing, oh, wow, this is why this is important. And that's why that foundational knowledge was important, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think after my junior year, I still had all these questions. I still felt like I didn't know that much. So I thought, well, I can delay the real world and go to school. 
uh, some more. So I started applying to grad schools, got into University of Illinois with Dr. Don Lehman, who was one of the foremost experts in protein metabolism in the world, um, especially as it relates to exercise and, and skeletal muscle. And so, um, you know, all those, all these different things were like, now, as I look back, all these different things were coming to a head. I was also competing in bodybuilding, um, really enjoying that. I was starting to write articles for bodybuilding.com. Like, I think my first article came out in like 2002, I want to say. It was my very first article. Yeah, yeah, that old. Um, and so all those things were coming to a head. So I was already, like, looking back, I realized, man, I did a lot of the right stuff anyway by accident in terms of just putting out a lot of content. Like, I posted I went back and looked and I estimate between 2001 and 2010, I made about a hundred thousand posts on various different bodybuilding message boards. Cause that was our social media. Like before MySpace was the first one, but you know, before Facebook and yeah, before Facebook and Instagram and everything, like there was bodybuilding forums and that's how you got your information for the most part. Um, and so I, I, I got known as somebody who had a name on the forums and whatnot, and that helped. And as far as it, like how I got to the position where I call out stuff, it's really interesting. I've always had a really low tolerance for nonsense. And I also, I think, I think just having gone through a rigorous advanced degree, just seeing how many of my ideas did not work out and how difficult it actually is to make a conclusive like statement in science and to see people just like blasting, you know, really general large statements all over the place. It, 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 I, I'll be honest, it drives me nuts, you know, but I used to kind of have more of the approach of, you know what, I'm just going to put out my content, you know, I'll address, you know, different um, myths when they come up and I'll address those directly but I, I won't call out people because that's not, you know, people look down on that and that's uncouth and that sort of thing. And I kind of figured, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a, a pro capitalist person. I was kind of like, well, these bad coaches and these scammers in the industry, you know, they'll just get weeded out over time because you can't have long-term success that way, um, you know, by doing that. But then I realized after a few years, well, the problem is, is there's always, and I'm, I'm going to say the word ignorant. I don't mean that in a bad way. Everybody was ignorant at a certain point, but there's always ignorant people coming into the fitness industry who will buy into nonsense because it sounds sexy. It sounds better. It sounds more appealing. And so that's kind of where I would say around like 2013, that's where things kind of changed. You know, and I just got so disgusted, especially as being somebody who was really into coaching at the time, um, just seeing so many competitors just get absolutely wrecked from terrible coaching. Um, that's kind of how I got into to calling things out. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's not always the most, it's funny. Somebody asked me today on social media. It's funny you brought that up. Somebody asked me today on social media, like, how do you have the energy to do that and call these people out? And uh, it's funny when people ask me this, I, I play a clip from live free or die hard. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie with Bruce Willis, yes. but there's a scene in the car where the kids like, the, the, the kid he's with is asking him like, why are you doing this? Like, you know, he's like, he's like, I'm not like you. I'm not like a hero. And Bruce Willis says, you know what you get for being a hero? You get shot at, get divorced, you know, all the, all these different stuff, all these bad things. And he, the kid goes, well, why are you doing this? And he says, 
because there's nobody else to do it right now. That's why. If there was somebody else to do it right now, trust me, I'd let them do it, but there's nobody else to do it. And so like, obviously not in the same scale, but I kind of feel like that way sometimes that there's so many people that they don't want to do that. They don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to offend anybody. And yes, I, I understand that. And I respect that. But I also feel what I do is very necessary because otherwise there are so many people who get sucked into these scams and it really harms people, especially when you look at, you know, people that promote these things unethically and then people try them, whether it's supplements or, you know, whatever garments or, or coaching, whatever. And then it doesn't work and they feel there's supposed to be something wrong with me. I'm broken. I hear that. So I, I, I must be broken. No, you're not broken. The system is broken. So that's kind of how I got to the place where I'm like, no, I'm, I'm not going to let this stuff fly anymore. If, if you make stupid, ridiculous claims, I am going to call you out. But I do try to differentiate between people who I think are just ignorant and saying something incorrect versus those that are making money from, you know, misinfor from misinformation or misrepresenting information or actively scamming people. Yeah. And I think it's, one, I know initially when people start absorbing your content, they don't know how to take lane there, you know, and then <laughs> I think a lot of that comes from, they don't know exactly how educated you are and how long you've been in the industry as well as your background. And I think when you talk about it being necessary, um, that's one of the things that I, I really enjoy about you is I find that even though um, the way you may deliver the message might offend some people, it's, it's like that parent that tells you the things you need to hear, not that you want to hear. Um, and you kind of address that on the broad scope, fighting a good fight for people that are ignorant and don't understand. And instead of just being like, oh yeah, try this. It's fine. You're like, no, you're being fucking stupid. This doesn't make sense. Here's why it doesn't make sense. You really need a little bit more patience, a lot more consistency and finding what works for you. And that's not the sexy message. That is the hardest part. I would say for me, when it comes to coaching people is telling them the truth, because there's so many, there's millions of people out there willing to tell them something that's a, a fallacy to make them believe that, oh no, that person doesn't know, like I can get you there and you know, wherever, however, that long-term just leads them wrecked. Like you said. Yeah, I mean, I even put up something on my Twitter today where I said, here, here are phrases that real experts use, the, the following phrases. Maybe the data suggests in this population, possibly, I'm not sure, um, it's not my scope, I don't know. Those are things that real experts say. Here's what uh, charlatans say. Best, worst, never, always, uh, they use the word they as like some dark, mysterious force that's trying to keep you sick and make you fat, um, you know, that sort of thing, you, you know, and, and operate in kind of like, you know, what they say, only a Sith deals and absolutes for my Star Wars fans out there. Um, you know, there's nuance to almost everything. And so, you know, be, really be careful about whose content you're consuming and, you know, just be open eyes. I mean, I think, I think we're having this problem in the entire, like just across society. I don't think this is even like a nutrition and fitness thing anymore. I, I see the polarization of ideas in politics and what we're dealing with right now. And we just have groups of people talking past each other. Um, when I think most people, if you can get them down, sit, sit with them and talk to them. I had this today, um, 
somebody who, who's a health at every size proponent, which by the way, I think some of that messaging is really good. I think that the messaging that, you know, you, should, you shouldn't diet if, you know, you're feeling like you're pressured to diet and you, you should love yourself regardless of your body fat levels and you should be body positive and all those sorts of things. But because there's pushback against that messaging, because when people say that, when they say they want to be heard and they say, well, we've been fat shamed or, or um, you know, you can be healthy, you can practice healthy habits and still be obese. What the other side hears is, it's not my fault I'm obese, you know, um, and I don't have any responsibility. That's what they hear. And so then what they say back is, well, no, it is your fault. You're just a sloth, you're lazy. Um, or maybe they don't say that, they say something like, but look at all this data that shows obesity, you know, has negative consequences. But then what the other person, again, on the other side hears is, they just said that I'm, I'm lazy and I'm fat and I'm going to die. And it's just an example of like talking past each other. And, you know, I, I think that for the most part, if you could just sit people down and talk to them and, and make them feel heard, you can get to the root of what the disagreements are. Um, but, you know, I, I, again, I have, I'm just, I'm very, I'm in my personal life. I'm like a very uh, emotional person. I'm very sensitive, you know, when it comes to my kids and my wife and that sort of thing. When it comes to data, I'm about the most cold, calloused person there is. I'm just like, well, I don't care what your feelings are. This is what it says, right? But I think we're, we're getting to a point where people care more about feelings than they do about, you know, what the hard data says. And I, I think one of the things I really like from a guy named Thomas Sowell, who's actually an economist, he said, in order to have compassionate policy or recommendations, let's say in this case, you have to have dispassionate analysis of the data. Meaning um, what should not be important is what feels right. What should be important is what helps the most number of people. And I think we're, we're, we're kind of losing that. I think that has so much depth and I'm pretty sure every listener is going to rewind that and listen to it again because this just like took a, a turn. Um, but I, like I said, when I was messaging you about the podcast, I have a feeling we're going to go in a, many different directions. But I think that that message is very deep and very applicable across whatever you know people are going through or struggling with is that the your perception drives your reality. And so if you perceive a message to be directed at you in a certain way with a certain tone and it offends you, uh, of course, you might be taking it out of context. And this is something that we see across the board, especially with what we do. Um, you take one sentence, maybe from an abstract, and you make a post about it insightful to, oh, then this is bad or this is bad or this is great. And this is the answer um, when, in fact, it's much more complicated than that. Um, and that's one thing that you do and you do it very well. There is one topic that I want you to go maybe not off about, but uh, you called somebody out that I've been watching for a little while and I've been interested to, and this is not my area of expertise. This is why I'm going to ask you. Um, but it, I think this was yesterday. So you might even know what I'm mm -hmm. talking about. Um, adrenal fatigue. And there are, again, like issues that people will kind of discuss and then make themselves experts in and then charge people for a service to address this said issue. Um, and that's kind of what your your post was relating to. And so for our listeners, because they tend to absorb the same content that I do um, with regards to especially bodybuilding niche specific, um, there's a lot of people kind of taking the forefront and making themselves experts and 
and addressing metabolic issues and, and things that come along with chronic dieting, especially to that extreme. Um, so for our listeners, can you discuss that um, and clear it up and why that is incorrect? Sure, absolutely. So I think one of the things to keep in mind, pardon me, is that when we talk about this, there's what I say and there's what people hear. So when people talk about adrenal fatigue, there it's usually scam artists and uh, naturopaths that are, are using it to explain a series of symptoms that are pretty nebulous, um, you know, like low energy. Well, how do you define low energy? Um, and, you know, um, so low energy, hormonal issues, even though they don't exactly define what hormones they're talking about, um, and several other kind of nebulous terms, uh, difficulty losing weight, you know, like, so some of these nebulous terms. And um, what I think is important to point out is when I say that there is no such thing as adrenal fatigue, I'm not saying that your symptoms aren't real. I'm saying that this particular proposed disease, that there's no evidence to support it being the cause of your symptoms. Now, we do know that there can be um, a few diseases that deal with the adrenal glands, uh, one of them being like Cushing's disease, which is a, a condition where you secrete um, excess, excess, um, excess cortisol. So you're, you're basically your adrenals are overactive, right? And we also have Addison's disease where you don't secrete enough cortisol. But as far as like the idea that you're, usually this kind of gets back to, well, I think the specific claim I addressed was that caffeine fatigues your adrenals. Yes. Um, there just isn't any, there's no objective data to support that. It just doesn't exist. Now, can you find data that suggests that people who consume more caffeine also have higher stress hormones? I'm sure that data is out there, but that is likely reverse causality people who are very stressed out probably consume more caffeine and uh, as, as a result of that. And so again, you gotta be really careful. Um, I actually did a, a long Twitter thread. I think it was like 18 different posts that were all in a chain, which is really hard on Twitter, by the way, because it's hard to organize. <laughs> um, but I talked about, I said in this thread, I'm gonna show you how I can make you believe the opposite of what the actual hard data says by cherry picking studies. And I use the example of antioxidants and muscle hypertrophy for resistance trainers, for people who resistance train. And I put together all these different mechanistic studies demonstrating that like, if you have elevated reactive oxygen species, it can impair anabolic signaling. And then people who have like um, muscle loss tend to have higher levels of inflammation and uh, reactive oxygen species and all this kind of stuff. And then I, you know, basically showing like saying, okay, well, A equals B and B equals C and C equals D and D equals E. So therefore A equals E, which you see that a lot. Mm -hmm. And I said, except if you actually look at the hard data, so hard data being they supplement with antioxidants, what happens to hypertrophy? Well, in healthy people who resistance train, who supplement with high dose antioxidants, it actually impairs muscle hypertrophy. But if I cherry picked enough of the right studies, I could convince you of the opposite thing. And it's just that we see this with um, the most recent time I saw this was with um, uh, Paul Saladino talking about um, 
uh, saturated fat. So he was talking about how, well, polyunsaturated fats are actually worse for heart disease because since they're unsaturated, they can be oxidized. And oxidized fats contribute to um, arterial sclerosis and heart disease. And it's like, okay, if you're listening, okay, well, saturated fats can't be oxidized. So therefore, A equals B, B equals C, C equals D, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Except if you actually look at the hard outcome data, people who consume more saturated fat actually have higher levels of oxidized LDL, which is what ends up getting into the arterial wall anyway. So again, it's an example of one of those things where somebody kind of picks the studies that they want to show what they want, but leaves out the larger story of what does the direct intervention hard data show? And I think people got to be really cautious when they're interpreting the claims of what people make. Like, I guess one thing I would say is if you're reading something online from somebody and they're making a claim, do, do the studies they cite actually su directly support that claim directly? Um, and I think a lot of people aren't very good at deciphering that. And, and that's, that's not an indictment on people because not everybody can be a scientist. Um, in fact, Greg Knuckles said something really good that actually kind of blew my mind at the time a few years ago. He said, you know, people are really good if they're in a conversation with somebody at determining whether or not that person knows more about a given topic than them, more or less. Like if, if we talk for a little bit and about various topics, like usually you and I can both decide, okay, well, she knows more about me with this particular thing. I know more than her at this particular thing. What everyone is really bad at doing is of two people, if there are two people, both who are more knowledgeable on a topic, which one is the more knowledgeable of the two? Mm. We're not very good at deciphering that. And that's, I think, where a lot of this confusion comes from is because, you know, they say, well, this person cited some studies and this person cited some studies. You know, you just kind of go with whoever you like identify with most. But what I'll always say is like, did you actually read the studies? Did you actually read them and see did it, does it support what they say it supports? And I'll tell you what, when people bring me a study and they say, this person you know, showed this and et cetera, et cetera, and I actually dig into the study 95 times out of 100, it doesn't actually support what they're saying. And I can explain that. But most people don't have the time or the, the wherewithal to be able to identify that. Yeah, and I think a lot of people, what you do, especially on social media, the first, the barrier of entry to sound like an expert or to put yourself out as an expert is minimum, right? Um, I, I see you go back and forth with, with other doctors or PhDs, um, and they might even have a PhD in a totally different realm, but they're making yep. dietary claims. And so people see PhD, oh, well, they must know what they're talking about. So therefore, whatever they're supporting or suggesting must be true. Um, and I think that that's one thing that I continue to see. Um, and I think it's awesome that you kind of acknowledge these people and you're like, okay, well, show me the data that you're talking about here. Show me the study that kind of cites this. And I'll get on board because um, one thing after consuming your content for long enough is I've heard you say this many times like you want to be the best in what you do like you want to be the most elite you want to be the best performer and if there was something that you found that suggested that taking a supplement or doing something different would aid in your own potential progress a fucking course you would do it um and i think that when i heard you say that that really got me to start buying in and this was like way back in 2016 
15, 16. Um, and from there, like, you know, it's, it's been good for me. And I think good for a lot of your, the people that do follow your content um, and consume it. It's that it's not about you selling anything to anybody, which I, I think also makes your job that much more difficult um, in what you're trying to pursue, because there's no kind of direct return on that, right? You'll get messages that obviously I know that that makes it worthwhile for you when you hear people say you helped me or, you know, your knowledge saved me from this, or you reversed kind of this process that I was put through from poor coaching or whatever it might've been. I know that you were really popular back then um, for kind of helping people with the, with the post-show rebound information and, and what they needed to know then that's kind of what got me to you. But at the same time, that being said, it's not sexy for you either. So this is something that you do genuinely, like there's no big return on that for you. Yeah. I mean, like if I look at what actually makes me money um, in terms of selling stuff, yeah, it's very indirect. I mean, at the end of the day, you you know, I can't say that it's completely, I mean, it adds out of the goodness of my heart, (laughs) but um, you know, by acquiring more followers, well, that gives more people that I can, you know, market things to and that sort of thing. And I do sell stuff, you know, I have books and I have, I do have a supplement line and I have a nutritional coaching app and all that kind of stuff. But it's funny, we, Holly and I just had a meeting in here today with our, our, um, with our executive assistant, we were talking about the values of the company and she really has trouble uh, marketing things. I, I don't like, I, I, I'm happy to sell the things we have because I know they're good products and they help people. And I, I said to her, I'm like, you know, I don't feel bad about marketing this stuff at all because I know it can help people and I know um, that they're they're good products and we're in competition for dollars from people. If we get more dollars, we actually can do more good with it than somebody, for example, who's trying to sell snake oil and BS, you know, like, like if we get this money, we can hire more people, we can put out more content, we can build more stuff that helps people, right? And so I think, you know, cause people will come back to me and they'll say, well, you're, you know, you're only doing this cause you saw a diet book or whatever. And I'm like, listen, you kind of pointed out already. Like, don't, don't you think that like the easiest thing in the world for me would be to claim that I found some magic solution, PhD, nutritional sciences, Lane Norton, world record holder, former world record holder, you know, pro bodybuilder, you know, all that kind of stuff but I'm not going to do that because it's BS, you know, and it's, you, you, you almost, you kind of were right there at saying it. Like I want to do the best thing for me. Like I don't, of course I want to be right. Of course. Who doesn't I'll do cartwheels in my living room if I'm right, (laughs) but I care, I care more about getting the right answer than I do about being right. Because if I'm right about everything, then it means I've already maxed out what I can do, that this is the best I'm going to get. I would prefer to be wrong <laughs> so, and find something that I hadn't thought of before so that I can incorporate that into what I do and be better at what I do. Because at the end of the day, yes, I'm a competitor myself and I want to be the best I can be. And if I'm already doing everything right, well, pff, then this is the cap. This is the ceiling. Right? How anticlimactic so, is that? This is it? Yeah, this, the best this it is gets? It. This is the best it gets, yeah. But um, yeah, so I, I think that a lot of people miss that. And I think that's a lot of the new followers. Too. It's, it's really funny because, you know, there are, there's a whole section of people that don't even know I had a bodybuilding career. You know, they had no idea, um, you know, that I was really good at bodybuilding as well. Um, 
and yeah, I'll get people like, man, I've been following you forever. I've been following you since uh, 2017. I'll be like, I already arrived in 2017. What are you talking about? Unless you were on the bodybuilding.com forums, I don't want to hear about you, but follow me forever. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's, um, you make a really good point that I want to do what's best to help improve myself from a selfish perspective. So at the end of the day, like, I wish I had found, like, I went to grad school because I wanted to find the magic, you know, anabolic trigger in nutrition, you know, like that sort of thing. And, um, you know, it was really disappointing because <laughs> it, it's like, you know, you just, I, we did, I did find some stuff that was really interesting, but nothing that was like revolutionary. And I always joke that like, if I had found magic foods, you know, don't you think that a guy with access to like the most like high tech lab equipment and most brilliant minds in nutrition in the world, if he couldn't find some sort of like magic food, you think this guy who's doing YouTube videos from his mom's basement found it? I don't think so. I mean, I suppose anything is possible. I suppose it's possible there's a teacup orbiting Pluto, but I'm, I'm pretty sure there's not a teacup orbiting Pluto. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's the hardest part. And as I continue to learn, especially after getting my master's, I learned that the more that I know, the more I realize I know nothing. And I just have so many more questions. Like you read something or you learn something and then you start to tie things in your head together. But of course, even getting what you see insightfully or what you would question to apply to research in a population that you want to study and having the correct context and the design, like so many variables, it's really hard to a, get that. Um, and then like how accurate and how applicable is that to real life? And so I think that's one thing that people also lose is the, how practical is the information that we're looking at and does it apply to you specifically? Or was this study done in an obese population free living, um, or not under specific conditions and where, you know, nutrition's kind of estimated variably. And we already know that diet recalls and stuff are, are pretty off as far as accuracy. So a lot of it's really hard to replicate. Yeah. I mean, I, I always kind of like, um, I tell people, I kind of have this hierarchy in my mind of like how I like evaluate data. So the first thing I do is um, if it's an area I know about, I'm like, okay, well on this topic, what kind of meta analysis do we have now when it, for our listeners who are familiar, meta-analysis is essentially a study of studies. So they lump up a bunch of studies that ask a very similar question and they attempt to evaluate, okay, is there a consensus here? Is there a clear consensus of what the data says? And if those meta-analyses are pointing in the same direction, then I, I'm like, okay, I'm pretty confident that you know this is what we're seeing. Um, if there's disagreement amongst those, then I'm also like looking at, okay, well, what are the experts in those fields saying, right? And if those have disagreements between them, it's, then I kind of default to, okay, what do the most tightly controlled experiments show? And is there any, is there any kind of consensus there? And if there's not a consensus there, then I go, well, we just don't know, you know, like that, that sort of thing. We just don't know yet. Um, but yeah, you can, my, my PhD advisor, Don Lehman, uh, we just had him on our podcast actually. And uh, one thing he said to me that I, I'll never forget, he said, if you torture the data enough, you can get it to show what you would like it to show. Mm. So I always tell people, you know, I used to get really excited about single studies and I'm even guilty of finding a study that supported what I, I wanted to support and then slapping that bad boy down on Facebook and being like, see, 
I told you, you know, and uh, that's really poor way to do science. And I'm, I'm guilty of that too. Um, I don't get excited about single studies anymore. I just don't. You can find a single study to support almost anything you want to show. Um, and the unfortunate thing is people will think that that means that like there's so many studies that are just fabricated. And I don't necessarily think it's fabrication. A lot of it is what is the bias of the researchers? How did they design the experiment? Because a lot of it is, did you design it to test what you actually wanted to test, right? So let's just take an example of, let's say you wanted to look at does, like, does uh, lifting frequency matter, right? So if you did uh, a study where you looked at um, squatting, you know, one time a week versus three times a week, and you did it in untrained lifters, and the uh, they're comparing like, you know, one's one day of six sets versus, um, you know, three days of two sets, and you know after 12 weeks there's no difference. You know, well, just slap that bad boy down. See, lifting frequency doesn't make a difference. No, no, that's not what that says. What that says is that untrained lifters have such a robust response to resistance training, it pretty much doesn't matter what they do. You're going to see results. And we also know that it's likely, based on a few meta-analysis that we've seen now, that there is kind of a session volume threshold to maximize uh, anabolic signaling and it may be less, it may be like 10 sets or less. So if you're comparing like six sets on one day versus, you know, three sets, uh, or th uh, sorry, three days of two sets, you're under that threshold, you're probably not going to see a difference. So it didn't actually test what you wanted it to test, right? And again, that doesn't mean that the researchers designed it like that to, to, to show that they might not have just like that might that particular study might have been done before everybody was aware of that, or there was that proposal on the table. So again, you really got to try not to get too excited about single studies and look at okay, what does what does the majority of the evidence say? I mean, again, like multiple sets versus single set. You can find studies that showed well. Look, single set was was just as good as multiple sets, but if you talk to most exercise science experts based on the meta-analyses, based on, you know, hundreds of studies, we're pretty confident that volume is a major factor for driving hypertrophy and strength, but you can always find a single study that will support what you want it to show. That's so interesting. Um, just on so many different levels, but it made me think of, have you talked to Dr. Buckner at all? Uh, yes, I have talked to Sam. And he's very much a proponent of um, volume is not a major driver um, and, you know, strength and hypertrophy are very different. So I would, I would, I mean, I studied under him for a couple of years, so I definitely know the way that he thinks, uh, but I would love to hear what you think about that argument. Yeah. So I think a lot of this boils down to, there's a really big limitations in the research literature. And I think a lot of the confusion comes from the fact that like, we compare um, people with different like muscle thickness measurements, et cetera, et cetera, across between different people, muscle thickness doesn't always equate to strength in terms of you can find somebody with less quad thickness who can still squat more than somebody with less quad thickness. Now, absolutely. But like everything matters when it comes to strength, you know, like how many muscle fibers can they recruit? 
What is their, um, you know, what is the pination angle of the fibers? What is the angle of the joint? You know, all these things matter. And I'm, you know, Dr. Buckner is certainly more versed in this than I am. Um, but if you also look at, okay, if you take someone and you, you, and they hypertrophy, they usually don't do that without getting stronger within an individual person, right? So it's, this is stuff that's very hard to assess because you're trying to untangle variables that are innately tangled together. But if we take someone and they can squat, you know, 400 pounds and we add 10 pounds of lean body mass and some of that of which is on the quadriceps, I think it's likely that that person will also get stronger. Um, but are there people who add muscle mass and don't get stronger? Sure. Are there people who get stronger and don't add muscle mass? Sure. And so that's where things get really tangled up. And yes, strength and hypertrophy are two different things as well. I, th I think that's true. Um, and so I guess the, the other argument you could make is maybe strength and hypertrophy aren't causing each other, but they both evolve in tandem based on the same, you know, drivers. That's also a possibility. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's one of those things that hopefully will get elucidated more over the, over the coming years. Um, it is a very interesting topic. Yeah, I think it's just like very convincingly so. Like either way, he would always argue against his own arguments um, just for the sake of, of being able to see it from both sides. Um, but yeah, I and that's, that's, that's part of being intellectually honest too. Like you acknowledge the limitation of your argument, right? Um, and that's, I, when I'm doing debunks, a lot of times I'll actually try to make the opposite argument, you know, because I, I don't want to cherry pick. I want people to, to, to be informed because if I just present my side, that's not, that's actually not useful for a persuasive paper. As part of a persuasive paper, you are supposed to present both sides of the argument um, and then just tell which one, you know, which side you're coming down on. Yeah. And I think it's, that's one of the best things that I had taken in my undergrad was a debate class and you had to argue a topic you didn't agree with at all. Um, and it just makes you kind of critically think and, and objectively look at the arguments that make sense, um, even though you may not align your personal thought processes or beliefs, um, or maybe the evidence doesn't actually show that you can understand where the person's coming from. And if they do that, um, knowing that it's wrong, well, that says a lot more about them. Um, but your exper expertise is around protein. And so for our listeners, I want you to kind of give them insight as to, you know, nutrient timing is, is widely discussed and some people will hyper-focus on the nutrition side. So this is going to be more for the advanced athlete here that's got down consistent training, understands progressive overload, um, and is looking at nutrient timing and optimizing that for body composition changes specifically around strength and hypertrophy. So what insight can you give based on your own studies, um, in the literature that you're very familiar with to those listeners? Yeah. So I think we're dealing with two different sorts of questions here. So there's the the traditional anabolic win window, you know, pre-exercise and post-exercise, like how sensitive is that? Um, and then we're also dealing with an, an issue, not necessarily of timing, but of distribution. So I'll, I'll address distribution first. So timing probably isn't as important as proper protein distribution. So when we look at things like carbohydrates and fats, the body has viable storage mechanisms for both. Right, so carbohydrate is a little bit more limited. You can, you've pretty much got to burn it off or store it as, as glycogen in the liver or muscle. Um, 
adipose has, or fats have essentially unlimited uh, storage mechanisms. Um, you could argue that fat cells only like to expand to about 100 microns, and after that, you've got to produce more fat cells, and it gets a little more difficult. But that's for for most for most practical purposes, fat fat deposition is kind of unlimited. Uh, but when it comes to protein, the body does not really have a viable storage mechanism for protein. Uh, you do have an amino acid pool, which is very limited. Uh, and honestly, most of that pool is made up of amino acids that have been liberated from intact proteins through protein turnover, which is protein uh, breakdown. In fact, actually in protein synthesis, um, most people, uh, you know, they'll ask, well, how many of these amino acids or proteins I'm taking in, how much goes towards muscle building? Almost none, almost none. Actually of new growing uh, protein chains uh, in skeletal muscle, seven of every eight amino acids are recycled from a previously broken down protein. So your body is extremely efficient at handling. Now, here's the rub. In order to maximize your rates of protein synthesis, you have to disproportionately take in protein, okay? So for example, you know, the amount of amino acids you can deposit in skeletal muscle per day is only about five to 10 grams. It's very small. Uh, and actually like if you deposited 10 grams of amino acids in skeletal muscle per day, based on how much fluid we, would be associated with that, I mean, that works out to about 25 pounds of lean body mass a year. So like, but still you're talking about, you know, taking in over 200 grams of protein just to maybe get five or 10 grams deposited, probably less than that for people who aren't new newbie lifts. Um, so the problem is like, okay, well, you only need about 60 grams of protein to be, you know, in a, a nitrogen balance, right? So not be deficient. So a lot of people think, well, just add 10 grams on top of that, right? You'll deposit all of it. It's not the way it works, right? You've got it. So what I'm saying is you got to take in a disproportionate amount of protein to actually maximize your deposition. Now, like I just said, there's no storage mechanism for protein. Now I had an argument one time where somebody was arguing that, you know, muscle tissue itself is a storage mechanism of protein. That's like saying a house is a storage mechanism for wood. Sure, you can tear the house down and you can get some wood from it, but it'd probably be a bad, stupid idea and it's not what the house is intended for, right? So skeletal muscle isn't intended to be act as a nutrient reservoir. It's intended for locomotion. So because of that, um, you cannot make up for low protein at one time of the day by overconsuming at another time of the day. So we do show that there kind of is this anabolic cap at a meal and, you know, people are going to ask me, well, what's the magic number? Well, it depends. It depends on if you've resistance trained, it depends on your lean body mass. It depends on um, a, a lot of different factors. And it depends on protein quality, the digestibility of that protein. It depends on the leucine content of that protein because leucine is the amino acid responsible for triggering muscle protein synthesis. But I will say generally that it's probably between 25 to 60 grams, depending on your lean body mass and the source of protein. Like if we're talking about a female, your size, taking away protein supplement, 20 to 25 grams is going to be plenty to maximize that response. But if we're talking about a dude, my size, you know, 200 and some pounds of, uh, well, not lean body mass, but high amount of lean body mass, um, who is taking in like a, a poorer source, a less bioavailable source of say like you know, an intact kidney bean protein, 
right? Well, then it might be like 70 or 80 grams to maximize that response because it's less bioavailable and the amino acid composition is poorer. So it's really difficult to pinpoint a number and pin that down. Um, but yeah, somewhere for, for most protein sources, especially isolated protein sources. So if we're talking about whey protein or a pea protein isolate or, you know, some of these other ones, 30 to 50 grams, somewhere in there for most people is going to cover those bases. But, you know, if your goal was to hit, you know, say like I eat about 235 grams of protein a day and I distribute that over four or five meals typically. Uh, but if I, you know, went eight hours and fasted, like if I, you know, did my normal sleep and then I woke up and I fasted another eight hours. Well, I can't just have a hundred grams at that first meal and make up for what I didn't get previously because, you know, at about 50 or, you know, 30 to 40 to 50 grams, I've already capped out that response. So everything on top of that is just superfluous. Um, so we did, we did do it a study in, and that was in rats, but it was later validated in humans as well that showed that, I mean, basically how you distribute the protein throughout the day can affect muscle hypertrophy. So we basically um, fed the exact same protein source, the exact same amounts. Um, we, all we did was change the distribution. So the, the subjects were getting uh, about 15% at breakfast and lunch and about 70% of their daily protein at dinner, which by the way, is kind of how a lot of people eat. Most people eat the vast, uh, I think De Castro et al demonstrated that most Americans eat about 65% of their protein at dinner. Mm. Um, so then we, we, we compared that to a group that was getting a much more equal distribution. It wasn't completely even, but it was close. Um, and we did see about, you know, in terms of, we looked at the, the hypertrophy of the hind limbs of these animals, and we did see about an 8% difference between uh, the group that was, you know, consuming evenly distributed protein versus unevenly distributed. Now, again, people will ask me, like, obviously the first question is, well, how, how about intermittent fasting? Well, if you asked me, if it depends on the context. If you're telling me that you're a bodybuilder who wants to build the maximum amount of muscle tissue you possibly can, I would tell you that intermittent fasting is probably not the best choice for that. However, if you're saying, well, I'm not worried about being as muscular as possible and I just want to lose some body fat, can I still build some muscle with intermittent fasting? Of course you can. Yeah, of course you can. You can always, like, we have to remember there's always the question of need versus optimal. And these are two different questions, even though people use them interchangeably. How much protein do I need? It's a different question than how much protein is optimal for muscle building. So um, now to, that's kind of the, the distribution question. So I think for the most part, you know, eating high quality protein sources that you relatively evenly distribute over probably three to five meals. I'll tell people what I do since I want to do what's best and what I think is best. I do four or five meals a day. I don't think there's a big difference between the two of those. It just depends on how kind of my timing works out. And um, that's it. I don't, uh, I don't do six meals, I don't do eight meals. There's actually evidence that if you do it too frequently, that the system actually kind of needs time to, for lack of a better term, reset. Uh, and that feeding too frequently may actually be a, a negative, but feeding too infrequently is probably a negative as well for hypertrophy. And we see that across the board with, with most things in biology. Too little, not a good idea. Too much, not a good idea. It's kind of like Goldilocks. This one is just right, you know, so somewhere in the middle is kind of just right. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's kind of the distribution question. As far as the like anabolic window timing question, I think it's a little bit irrelevant if, be, and here's why, 
I don't think it's people have kind of there's been a few studies come out and people have said, well, see the analog window is a myth, it doesn't matter at all. I don't I don't think so. I think that it's probably a good idea to get like a high quality protein in a good amount within a relatively soon period of time after your training, within one to two hours. I think Alan Argon referred to it as probably the anabolic barn door rather than the anabolic window. Um, but if you're appropriately distributing your protein anyway, you're going to do that by default, right? So if I go in and I train for about an hour and a half or two hours, or even somebody that trains for one hour, well, if you eat your pre-workout meal, you know, an hour or two beforehand, and then you train, and then you eat your post-workout meal an hour or two after that, you're already falling in line with kind of how you would distribute protein anyway. So I think it's a little more moot whenever you're, I think the, the, the timing question becomes moot, moot, sorry, <laughs> becomes moot if you're actually distributing it appropriately. Yeah. And I, I definitely see that a lot. And I think that one of the, the biggest gimmicks that I've had to kind of unfuck with mindset around, I'm going to lose all my like game that word. is, um, <laughs> is that, oh, I have to drink a protein shake right when I finish. Whereas if you ate before you went to the gym and you had enough protein, you can wait. It's okay. Especially like people are like, oh, I got to do it before I do my cardio. I'm like, no, you're going to be okay. You can wait till you like calm down and, you know, have a meal or whatever it is that you need to do. That's something that I still see linger a lot. Um, And I I understand, I don't think it's going to do them harm necessarily, but it's not like you must. Um, It's really about what's applicable and what makes you feel good. And if it works for you, that's okay. But to be neurotic over it is probably not a big deal. Yeah. I mean, if, you know, it depends on the intention, right? Like if you're if you're doing it because you're like, well, I just like having a protein shake after my workout. I feel better, you know, whatever. Cool. Go for it. But if you're like having a freak out because you didn't get your protein shake, you know, two minutes after your workout finished, you know, and even like there's so many intra workout supplements too. And I'm like, Oh my God, bodybuilders just have such a high opinion of themselves. They need an intra workout supplement. Like you're not like, trust me, your three sets of arm curls did not deplete your muscle glycogen. You're fine. You know, like I used to train for, for powerlifting. I would train for four hours doing squat, bench press and deadlift, like pretty high volume, demanding workouts. And I would just take a Gatorade with me. And if I felt like I was boinking a little bit, I would drink it. But most times I didn't really feel like I needed to drink it. Um, now that's anecdote and whatnot, but you know, if you had a meal an hour or two before you went in, you work out for an hour or two, those amino acids are still there. They, they, I think people act like they go in and do a workout. It just depletes all the amino acids out of their bloodstream instantaneously. And they got to have a, but I was like this, right? Like I would do a, like 20 minutes of low intensity cardio. I'm like, well, got to get my protein shake afterwards. Cause I didn't work out. You know, I think people think about training is kind of like an on off switch, you know, and it's not like an on off switch. It's like a dimmer switch. You know, you, there, there's emphasis. Is it the same thing to go in and do like a heavy squat workout where you're doing, you know, six sets of squats, real heavy. Is that the same thing as going in and doing bicep curls for half an hour? What well, one might, might be an idea to have some intra workout. Another one, probably not necessary, but I think a lot of that is just, again, if you can overcomplicate the system, you can sell more stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the biggest things that I see um, is people will give a lot of energy to overcomplicating nutrition when they don't really give a lot of intention with 
training in progressive overload in tracking training and in ensuring strength is progressing and in, in stimulating a new adaptive stimulus. And, and if, I think if people would focus more on those variables, um, the, the body composition that they want to achieve would come a lot more easily, um, in a shorter amount of time, probably, um, with a lot less stress. Um, because I think once that you nail down kind of, um, the frequency and distribution of protein intake, and you're ensuring you're getting enough along with proper energy requirements around training. Um, if you're intentional about that training and you really commit to that aspect of it, things really start to change. That was the biggest thing, biggest learning curve for me is when I really started dialing in training. That's when I started to see the best body composition changes overall. Yeah. So I just, I made a post about this on Instagram, I think three days ago, actually it's a, it's a picture of me deadlifting. Um, and I am a PhD in nutrition. I will be the first person to tell you that training is much more important than nutrition. And I see so many people now they're both important. Okay. But training resistance training is your greatest tool to change your body composition. And the number of people who obsess over nutrition, and then don't even give a second thought to their training, or they're not intentional with their training, or they have no idea how to go in and actually train hard. They just go in as a method of burning calories. Um, and then they wonder why they can't make changes. Resistance training is the major driver that's going to change your body composition. You do whatever you want with nutrition. You start a high protein diet, whatever. If you're not re resistance training, your body composition is going to change extremely modestly. I mean, they, the research shows that if you, if you don't resist this training, you lose weight, fat, you lose meh, 50, 50 or 60, 40, like fat to lean. If you resistance train, it's almost hundred percent fat. And unless we're talking about contest prep, people are getting super lean and then you start losing some lean tissue. Um, but yeah, like uh, the amount of people who just don't give any thought to that. And I always tell people, I'm like most people go in the gym and work out. I train there's a difference because mine is intentional. I have a plan. I have a plan for today. I have a plan for this week and I have a plan for this month and I have a plan for this year. And sometimes I got to adjust those plans because things happen. But for the most part, there is a plan because if there isn't, well, then you're just working out. Then you're just exercising, which is fine. I mean, you can you definitely be healthy that way. But if you're wanting to make progress, you need to learn how to train. And there is a big difference between training and just looking at your favorite IG person and copying their workout. There's a big difference. Yeah. And I think the, the biggest thing that I see, and, and I don't guilt people for this, we can all kind of be like, this is you want the path of least resistance. Well, if I can get all these results by just taking this magical supplement over here and I can just kind of go in the gym and do like five or six exercises and it's going to be awesome. Whereas like you have to really push the gauge of your comfort, find where that is and like force yourself to push against that. And then when you hit that resistance and you see things happen over time, like you have to consistently just kind of brace yourself for that discomfort because you have to kind of push that limit. And it's fun for me when I first got into really focusing on strength training, getting stronger, focusing on that aspect of it, and just kind of keeping consistent with nutrition principles that I'd already acquired over, over a period of time. Um, that made it fun for me. And I didn't have expectation other than just focusing on my performance. And again, like that's where I saw the biggest changes, but it took me failing on a deadlift at 300 pounds, like almost dying. Right. Um, to push past that 
first, like when you lift a heavy load, like that's a different stimulus, especially when you've been doing like a lot of high rep work, um, getting comfortable with that failure point and then tying that over into every movement and understanding what that feels like and kind of how to burn past that. That was huge. And I just think a lot of people, unfortunately, won't lean into that. Yeah, I, so that is like literally the post I made the day after the one that we just talked about was talking about how to push yourself in the gym. Um, because you're right. You know, if you ask somebody what the RPE was on a lift, if they've never actually trained to failure, they don't know. That's why when people say, oh, just do like a nice, easy RPE eight squat or something like that. I'm like, you've never trained squats to failure because <laughs> an RPE eight is not an easy squat. <laughs> So it's, it's, um, I think there's a lot of that. I think for females, especially it's getting better, but I think most females, when they get into it, there's that fear of, you know, I don't want to get too bulky. I don't want to get too big. You know, I want to retain my femininity. And I, you know, I think that's like, I've heard this, I didn't make up this comparison, but that's like getting behind a wheel of a car and being worried that you're going to turn into a NASCAR driver. Like I've spent my entire adult life trying to get too big and I basically look like a dude who's fit when I wear a shirt. You know what I mean? Like, um, it, it's not, for the most part, it's not going to happen accidentally. And guess what? If it does, then just stop lifting so much and it'll go away. You'll be fine, you know? Um, but yeah, I think, um, I think that there's, I used to have much more X's and O's conversations with clients, and now it's much more mindset uh, stuff because I think that it's not the X's and O's you're missing. Like that's not, that's not why you failed or that's not why you've had trouble with this. It's because you couldn't get consistent. I'll tell people like, do you really think like if I, you know, take like take a female, whatever, do you really think if I can put like 20% on your lifts and we get you just consistent with nutrition, just consistent, not even close to perfection, just consistent. Do you really think you're not going to make progress if you do that for a year? I mean, do you really think that? Well, what what you're saying when you if you if you truly believe that is you you think you're a unicorn and you're just you know different than everybody else. And so I have to have these conversations where I I, I ask you know I don't work directly with clients so much anymore, but more so like um, people who use our app and that sort of thing. And I'll say, well, do you do you think that you're a unicorn? And you know most people go, well, probably not. You know. And, um, but I think those, those, those conversations are hard because nobody, I think for a lot of people, personal responsibility feels very threatening for their ego. Um, it feels very threatening. And I've always kind of had a, like a little bit different framing of personal responsibility. And I think personal responsibility is very liberating because if I've seen these, I realize I'm getting really high level, but there's like almost a, a fight now between fatalism or fatism and completely 100% personal responsibility everything's your fault and again this is a this is something where there's nuance in between based on your trauma your childhood all those sorts of things it may make it or your genetics whatever might make it more difficult for you easy or difficult for you to do certain things but you can always get better you can always get better um and I always tell people, no matter how bad things are for you, somebody came from worse and did better. So your excuses aren't invalid, but they are, right? So I hear you. I, I empathetically hear you 
that you've had these things happen that make it difficult for you, but also it still is your personal responsibility to improve those things. And I think we can acknowledge that people have not 100% free will in terms of how we act, but we do have choices. And I've always looked at personal responsibility as, as freedom, because if I'm personally responsible, it means I can change and I can improve. If I'm not responsible for any of my actions and everything's just predetermined based on my history, then what is the incentive for me to try and improve? Because I can't, right? And I, I, so I have these conversations with, with people and say, you know, the great thing is you, you're in charge. You're driving the ship. You can make these decisions. You can make a change. I'm not saying it's easy. It's not easy. Change is never easy, but you, you can make those changes. And actually, I'm thinking of something Will Smith said a few weeks ago or a few months ago that I heard. And I was like, wow, that really hits home. And he was taking, saying about relationships, but I think it also applies to just anything that happens to you in life. And he said, no matter when, when somebody hurts us or harms us, we want it to be their responsibility to fix us, to, to, to make it right. And the reality is, it may be somebody else or something else that harmed you, but the responsibility is always on us, the individual, to make it right for ourselves. And so when people tell me about the things that they've had happen to them or, or why it's difficult for them to do certain things, I have to remind them, I hear you. I understand that it's difficult, but no one's coming to save you. You, you have to make these decisions for yourself. And I'm sure... I'm sure like, I know we're having a very like high level, like 10,000 foot conversation, but I'm sure you know what I'm talking about when we're, we're talking about these conversations with clients. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think that one of the hardest things in the, the conversations that I have to have is all of your feelings are valid. I don't discredit them whatsoever for anybody, but you will always be the product of your choices, not your circumstances. And I think when you take the power back and you realize that you are responsible for the next part of your life, whatever that's going to look like for you, it's very empowering. But for a lot of people, it takes away that victim card and you can't play that anymore. And when you, when you realize you don't have that, I think for some people it's, it's been a comfort for them and they've kind of relied on that excuse, whatever it might be. Um, and it, it becomes a card that they always throw, but when you, when you get, uh, you know, that card is, is taken away from you and it's all on you now. And the next steps are on you. That's very uncomfortable, very scary and, uh, requires a lot of self-exploration um, and understanding yourself on a level where you can realize where you start to have blind spots and where your hiccups are. And I think that's why we are so important. And it's critical to have coaches that are able to see your blind spots. Like even as a coach, I have a coach because I know I have my own and I'm very aware of them. And self-awareness is incredibly important to continue to evolve as a person. And when you talk about potential, whether it's in bodybuilding or life, whatever it might be, if you set these kind of limits for yourself, well, you're never going to push against them and figure out what it is you could be. And to me, that's just incredibly exciting. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of to help uh, bring this 10,000 foot conversation back down to ground level, I'll give you a hard example of this. You, you mentioned the victim card. And um, like, I, I always tell people, you're not a victim. You know, and I, I, maybe you have been, you know, and I, I went through a period of my life um, years ago where I'd gotten kicked out of a company um, that I helped found uh, cost me a lot. Cost me a lot of money, financial stress, 
Um, I, I mean, I, I, I still remember calling my parents, bawling my eyes out as a 35 year old because I thought that my life was over, that this was it, like that this had taken the last thing from me. And um, I remember my parents, I have great parents. I'm very thankful for that. And um, I don't know if they said it to me or if they sent me something that was like, that was the quote I heard, but it was, I, I repeat, I've repeated this to myself so many times since then is I am not always in control of what happens to me. And I'm not always in control of the people around me, but I am 100% in control of how I respond to the things that happen to me and how I respond to the people around me. And that has given me great comfort in my life. And um, I think that when you frame it like that, it becomes a, you can take that power back and you're not a victim anymore. And I'll give you an example in nutrition and training where, where this comes in as a coach. I've had so many people say, I can't lose fat um, because of my hormones. And then you find out they've never actually had their hormones assessed. Cause I'll say, well, what hormones and what's wrong with them? And part of that is the fear that if they got their hormones tested and they were normal, that there wasn't, there's, there's no longer this nefarious, um, you know, thing that's keeping them from getting to their goals, that it's, it's actually on them. It's actually why a lot of people self-sabotage and don't sell out to go for their goals because a lot of people are afraid. What if I put in everything I had? What if I pushed all my chips in the center and went all in and it didn't work out? Then it's all on me, right? And that's really scary for some folks. But I always tell people like, you've only got one life push those chips in the center and go for it. Because, you know, even if you don't get the big thing, you'll learn so much along the way. You know, like, I, I mean, I wanted to be IPF world champion and that's probably never going to happen. I mean, just based on my age and being real, you know, being real. Now I'm still, I still train like I want to be IPF world champion. And, you know, I beat multiple people who were multiple time IPF world champions. Um, and so it'd be easy for me to look back and say, wow, I failed at that. You know, that sucks. What a waste. It wasn't a waste. I learned so much through that process. Like it made me a stronger person. So even though I, I haven't achieved that goal and maybe I never will, I don't regret a single second of the time I put into that because I learned so much about myself as a person by doing that. Yeah, I think that these are just like huge points for people to take away. And this turned into something that I love talking about, which is mindset stuff. One thing that I always say, like, I, if I'm betting on anybody in my life, it's going to be myself because you always have control over what you give 100% to. And even if you come up short with whatever aspiration it might be, it's going to be worth the investment because you are going to take so many things away from doing that, relying on yourself. Like if your back is against the wall and you have to get shit done, don't rely on anybody else to do it for you. Um, that's just an incredibly powerful thing. So um, Lane, to, to I don't want to keep you too long, but I really, really, really appreciate you coming on. We'll probably have to do this again because um, I know that there's a lot more that I'd love to dive into with you. But for our listeners, can you let them know where they can find you and anything you want to plug here? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm pretty much bio lane on every social media there is. Um, I think on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash Lane Norton, but you know, just Google me, bro. Um, so, and then if, you know, people want to know about like the, the different things we offer, like we do offer one-on-one coaching through team bio lane. 
Uh, that's something we provide. We have a team of coaches that are really incredible um, that we have kind of, you know, groomed to take on this role and we really trust. Um, and then, so that's kind of like at our most high level, like, you know, level of support. Uh, and then we have our nutritional coaching app, Carbon Diet Coach, which is less than $10 a month to get customized nutrition recommendations. Um, and that's been going extremely well. We have over 26,000 members on that app. And um, I think it has like 4.8 uh, stars in the, in the app stores. So it's been doing incredibly well. And it's really building an amazing community of, of supportive people as well. Then we have our BioLane Workout Builder, which again is kind of a little bit like lower barrier to entry than one-on-one -on -one coaching, which is customized training templates based on your goals that you can customize exercise selections. We also have home programs. We have our supplement line, Outwork Nutrition. Again, supplements aren't magic, but if you want a really badass, kick-ass pre-workout and recovery product, we make those that taste good. They're excellent, well-formulated, simple, but effective. Um, and then uh, our books, our educational books. Uh, so our, our educational books, you can find at biolanestore.com. Um, actually, if you just go to um, my website, Biolane, you can find pretty much everything there. But our educational books, like um, especially if you've enjoyed the, the kind of higher level uh, discussion about mindset, like our book, Fat Loss Forever. Um, if you were somebody who's really struggled to lose fat and keep it off, or felt like you've tried everything and hasn't worked, I can say, unabashedly this book will change your life if you read it and ingest everything that's in the book. It will, it is one of the things, it's probably the thing I'm most proud of um, in my entire career is writing that tomb because I really put a lot into that. Awesome. Thank you so much, Lane. And I can, I can definitely support the fact it's a phenomenal book. I've read it and it was great. So um, continue to do the, all the good things and fight the good fight. And we'll talk soon, Lane. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on.